Hello, robots. It's Hannah and Rachel of Remedial Studies here. We're back for another jam-packed, action-filled, fun time talking about Alan Moore's Watchmen. Uh, We have a lot to say. We have too much to say. Don't we always? Yeah, we never shut up. But I'm really excited to talk about Watchmen. Not because I really enjoyed Watchmen, because I didn't really enjoy Watchmen. It was a little bit of a (laughs) struggle. But we're going to be doing a lot of spoilers. I think we should go ahead and do the content warning for sexual assault. Yeah, there's going to be talk of sexual assault. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of, like, pretty heavy physical and emotional abuse things. If you're like me and you get anxious when you think about the nuclear death of the planet, you might want to skip this because we talk, we're going to end up talking about that a lot, I'm sure. Yeah, that's pretty unavoidable, I think, in the current political climate and what the, what the comic is about. Just to give a little bit of context for Watchmen, it was published in the mid-80s and I read a book that said that it kind of killed superhero comics for a while. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. I think a lot of it comes from the fact that I really think Alan Moore is trying to question and parody the superhero genre, which he even does when he writes for the superhero genre. Like, he's written, one of the more famous things he's written is The Killing Joke for Batman, which I went into it not really knowing a lot of it. It's very short. It's only, like, one issue. But it's, like, grimdark even by Batman standards. So I I guess I kind of knew his attitude towards it, or at least I thought I did, going into this book. I actually have read Watchmen before. It was when I was in high school, so it would have been about eight years ago. I don't think 17-year-old Rachel really appreciated a lot of the stuff that was in it. Like, I don't think I understood it. But that might just be by virtue of, like, I didn't understand The Great Gatsby when I read it in high school because I couldn't, I didn't have enough of a worldview to understand some of the things in Great Gatsby. Of course, Zelda Fitzgerald was robbed. But, like, I think it was it was probably a situation like that where I might have read it too early. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think with a book like this, especially because a lot of it, it has to do with the history of the United States as a war and nuclear war power as well as, like, a lot of the historical context for how it's an alternate history of the United States. I think understanding how that plays into the plot is really only something that was going to come with me understanding those events. Mm Mm-hmm. Which I do not believe 17-year-old Rachel did. Well, I'm going to tell you that 26-year-old Hannah did not know about the details of the Iran-Contra affair that I didn't know that either heavily influenced by this but i've since visited wikipedia and now feel that i have a handle on the situation do you want to start off talking about the alternate history kind of political context just because i feel like yeah. it's such a hot button issue right now yeah i think i think that's a good place to start so the alternate history of watchmen kind of starts in the 30s where in america masked vigilantes who they never really call themselves superheroes, which I thought was a good point, because aside from Dr. Manhattan, none of them have powers, per se. But these masked heroes and vigilantes start to sort of rise in America pre-World War II, 
Some of them are contracted by the government or from banks or as publicity stunts. Um, but some of them, like the original Night Owl, are like true believers and they want to make the world a better place. Supposedly? <laughs> There's a big question mark at the end of that sentence because a lot of them have very different ideas of what constitutes better. But the big, um, after the superhero and the rise of the superhero, the other big historical deviation, aside from the actual creation of Dr. Manhattan, is uh, America wins the Vietnam War. Yeah. And the Watergate scandal it never comes to light. Nixon does not get impeached and is, in fact, still president in 1985. Um, but that's the big alternate history is that America wins the Vietnam War. Nixon is never impeached. He stole the president. So I, I think that was the big jumping off point for me as to understanding sort of the political climate that this story exists in. Because the Watergate scandal really changed not only in like real life, but also I think in popular culture, how we viewed the trustworthiness of the government. And it's all been downhill from there. It has all been downhill from there because a big part of some of the heroes quote-unquote, of the various crime-fighting gangs, none of which are actually called the Watchmen, or they don't call themselves that, is some of them work for the government. Blake, the comedian, is the most famous one, where he is basically a mercenary mm -hmm. who rapes, pillages, and plunders his way through Saigon. It's kind of implied that he's a big part of why they win the Vietnam War. At least I thought that. His influence and... Dr. Manhattan. And Dr. Manhattan, yeah. Yeah, Dr. Manhattan, who you had a great point in our production meeting regarding the alternate history of, like, the development of nuclear weapons, is he is essentially a walking nuclear deterrent. Yes. Who was created through an, an accident where he was sort of, I didn't really understand this, probably because I don't understand the actual science behind it, but like how he was completely disintegrated and then it was like his consciousness or something like manifested him back into what we would consider reality. I don't think that's actual science. That's probably not actual science. To be fair, I did not check, <laughs> but I'm highly, highly well, suspect. The theory behind it. That they claim or they try to understand in some scientific manner. That might actually be a better way to look at it. They want it to be scientific, I think. The people who study Dr. Manhattan. But then there's some people. One guy who does an interview where he talks about Dr. Manhattan. Where he is quoted as saying, the Superman is real and he's an American. And he's like, well, what I actually said was God is real and he's an American. <laughs> I think what you had said in our meeting was in trying to understand how to become God, did they make one? Well, I was saying because a lot of, I think, the way that the scientists felt when they were doing their research to develop atomic weapons during World War II is they felt they were playing God and in playing mm -hmm. God. That's it. In playing God, did they make God? Um, I did want to point out, because I can't shut up about this, I hate Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. I find him obtuse and confusing for no reason. 
and he is completely incapable of forming a shared perspective with anyone around him. And that might just be because he is completely unlike anyone around him. Like, the the man who was disintegrated, this John, I don't remember what his last name was, but he's not in there anymore. Like, no, no part of him that was human remains by the end of the book. I think that choice is very purposeful, but a big part of his interrelationship with especially Lori, who's the Silk Spectre in the book, is she gets so frustrated with him because he doesn't see time like how we see time like we travel through time linearly we can only see back as far as like what memories of the past we have and there's this whole thing about nostalgia which we'll get into later i'm sure and we can't really see into the future for dr manhattan like it's sort of if you take the ideas kurt vonnegut puts about time into slaughterhouse five to its like weirdest but still kind of natural conclusion of all of time exists at once for him. Everything is happening at once for him. And Lori sort of questions him at one point where she's just like, so are you just going through the motions? Are you really a god if you're following a script? Is something like what she says. And I thought that was interesting if we look at it, especially his particular actions, but like every hero quote-unquote, is going towards a certain aim. But Dr. Manhattan supposedly knows the whole story already, which posits the question, do you do Star Trek rules, Prime Directive, where you do not interfere? And if you do interfere, is that also preordained? (laughs) I had a lot of thoughts about how time is utilized in this kind of weird nonlinear structure that that the graphic novel takes up sometimes like i was thought i thought a lot about the song desolation row as i was reading this and how like at midnight all the agents and superhuman crew go out and round up everyone who knows more than they do and how like the doomsday clock is going to midnight Mm-hmm. like and that thing is i don't know what any of that means i mean you could tie it into determinism like as a philosophical perspective and i think that it's not only Manhattan that plays into this idea of determinism, but also Veet. Because Veet is able to look at patterns and take in all this data, and then he's able to say, okay, if I do these things, then this will happen. This thing being, he kidnaps a bunch of scientists and artists and makes them build him something that can simulate an alien invasion. And then he mm-hmm. sets it off in New York. And kills about a million people. And that all happens pretty much off screen. You get a couple of little tastes of what might be going on in some of the documents at the end of chapters. But it's not until the last couple of chapters that anyone realizes, including the reader, that Veet is up to something. We think that there's maybe a, someone murdering the vigilantes, which is the first Uh, Because the comedian is killed. That's how the comic opens. Then Rorschach is captured by the police. They raid Dan's Mm -hmm. apartment. Dr. Manhattan has a very upsetting interview where he's accused of giving people cancer. And he goes to Mars and just has a fit. He has a temper tantrum. He has a temper tantrum on Mars. Temper tantrum on Mars. That'd be a great band name. I like it. But anyway, so it's up to Dan and Lori and they break Rorschach out of jail. 
And they finally figure out that the thing that's going on is Veet, and Veet basically simulates an alien invasion, kills a million people, and it's so believable that it forces the world to band together and in world peace, because now they have a bigger enemy than each other, which is a really interesting thing. But he's able to engineer this whole thing because he takes in all this data and looks at all these patterns and says, yes, this is what will happen if I do this, which I guess is an interesting Mm -hmm. Because he also has to have the free will to do those things, but everything's happening at once. Right. But there's this idea that if you follow the three lines of cause and effect, you can make something happen. It finally clicked in my head why his name is Ozymandias. Yeah. Ozymandias, king of kings, look upon my works and despair. <laughs> uh... I got there. I got there. It takes me a minute sometimes. This has been proven on this podcast before, but I'll get there. I, sometimes I don't ever get there, so I wouldn't feel bad. But yeah, with Veet, if we take a look at just Rorschach and Veet as sort of foils for each other, how they're the complete opposite of the spectrum of how they view how to solve the same problem. Because Rorschach is really, really focused on the individual. He goes rogue after um superheroes or or vigilantes are outlawed in like 1977 and the story takes place in october of 1985 so for about eight years he just kind of goes and does whatever and he doesn't care what anyone else has to say because he is so convinced that he's right and i think that really started to click for me when he talked about how he makes his mask He doesn't call it a mask. He calls it his face. For those of you who don't know, he's named after the Rorschach blot tests. They're essentially meaningless, but like you, whatever your projection of what they look like is supposedly, it says something about you. Your assignment of meaning to an arbitrary and meaningless object. But his mask is this fabric that Dr. Manhattan helped develop where it's like a this like black blobs on a white background and they constantly move and make different shapes but he specifically says that it was beautiful because it never mixed into gray mm-hmm. i mean i i think that's really who he is he thinks that he is i see right and wrong no in between yeah but that is ultimately seen through the perspective of the other people and also like just looking at some of the shit he does like, that's not true. And him and V are two answers to the same question. Do the ends really justify the means? Which was a huge thing in American politics during the time that this was I being written. I think it's still a huge issue in American politics. Now, We wanted you wanted to mention that uh, actually yesterday on... Because we're recording this on Saturday, February 17th. And yesterday... Several entities got indicted in an investigation in Russian meddling in the election. I think it was like 17 or 19 yeah, people. There, there's also a lot of anxiety around the situation in terms of nuclear involvement with North Korea right now. Yeah. And I think all of those things were anxieties that were expressed in Watchmen. They talk about Russia moving into, I think, Afghanistan. Yeah, Afghanistan and Pakistan. And Russia actually did invade Afghanistan, but it takes place much mm-hmm. later in the book than it did in real life. I'm not sure. I think. U.S. history. World history? History? Not not the strong suit of the ladies on the show, I don't feel. 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, but it's just, I was reading this, it was really eerie, because I read it, I think, at the end of last year, and then a couple of weeks ago, they had that scare in Hawaii, where the mm. missile alarm went off, and people thought they were going to die. They thought it was real. No one told them that it had been some kind of mistake until I think about for 30 minutes. They thought they were going to die in a missile strike. So the the things that are in this book are, are very real and very relevant. We had talked about how for a couple of years it, it seemed like less of an issue, maybe some optimism from the Obama era. It's pretty much gone now. Yeah, I, I think it has. The rose-colored sunglasses have definitely come off. Okay, I know we've discussed our political opinions on the show before, no Nazis, no turfs. It pains me every goddamn day when I have to wake up and think about how that Cheeto is our president. It's, it's upsetting. And, like, yeah, other people have had worse presidents, to be fair, but, like, we've never had a Donald Trump before. God only knows what we're going to be like at the end of this. I don't know. I feel like Andrew Jackson was pretty up there in terms of awfulness. Ooh, he's just yeah. really far removed yeah. from our lives. Yeah, he, he's so far removed from, like, our cultural consciousness. I feel that's a really good point because they do talk a lot about white supremacy and, like, Nazism and fascism in Watchmen. Where, like, Rorschach himself is like, oh, well, if thinking like that makes me a Nazi, then I'm a Nazi. And I'm like, yeah, you are, dude. I don't know that Alan Moore fully condemns white nationalism in this book. Do you know what I mean? Not in this book. I think there's a lot of, maybe not white nationalism. He talks about fascism a lot in like V for Vendetta and stuff like that. But definitely in this piece, while I think it might be my personal feelings about that kind of thing where I want to read into it as being more condemning than it is. I, I think you're right. I think there's not really a straight up, condemnation of anything because really and i think we've talked about this before really how you determine i feel what an author thinks at least in an individual piece is determined not by what they put in or leave out by what how those things are mm -hmm. handled and the fact that that it is almost just like thrown out and then brushed aside not even just with 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 warshark like several occurrences within this book talk about the crazy 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 nationalism that came out of specifically mccarthyism as a somewhat legitimate political <laughs> your voice just rose three octaves because of how uncomfortable that made you it makes me uncomfortable because it's like yes i know that is a thing that happened and it's true that people thought that and that it would almost be, like, obviously we don't come to comic books for realism, but, like, it would almost be less believable if there weren't some of those people in the situation that the comic kind of puts you yeah. in who thought that. But, uh, yeah, his his treatment of it is very ambiguous at best. Like, I don't think it's made to be like, oh, he's the real hero of the story because I don't, that's certainly not how I interpret right, it. Right, because you're talking about Rorschach and how... He is, he does have some incredibly troubling political and moral views, and he is probably the most likable and relatable character, for better or for worse. Yeah. Other than probably Lori, who brings, I feel like, the only real humanism sort of perspective to the story. Yeah, I would agree with that. 
it is ultimately a story about what happens when a group of people either purposefully or not put themselves above everybody else and i think the crime busters and like the league like they all pretend to do that dr manhattan really does yeah he's such he's so he's very troubling to me i feel like you know we talked about him losing his humanity i really feel like that's symbolized by him losing the amount of clothing he wears over time and like they talk about how in vietnam they bowed to him as a god and i feel like he just gets more and more distant and i don't know if it's because he's engaging with time in that way that you were talking about but I think where it ties in the most, Dr. Manhattan aside, is in, weirdly enough, that pirate comic story that runs in parallel with the comic as a whole and is really a counterpoint to Veet as a savior figure, because I'm sure he'd like to think Mm -hmm. that he saved humanity, but maybe not. Yeah, um, so the pirate story. It is a run of a comic called Tales of the Black Freighter that was written and produced pre- previous to the time period in which the comic, for the most part, takes place. But it's being reprinted, and um, it is read by this young man who kind of hangs out by this newsstand. He keeps coming up, but it is the story of this man who was, I think it's just called Marooned, and he is marooned on an island by um, the Black Freighter, which symbolize it's supposed to symbolize hell, in order to get home to supposedly save his wife and children, he completely and utterly forfeits any humanity he has. To the point that when he gets back home, he is completely unrecognizable. Right, and he's trying to save his family from the Black Freighter, but he ultimately ends up, mm-hmm. he kills a man and a woman in order to sneak back into town because he thinks that they're already there. Then he goes in, I think he actually kills some of his family because he thinks that they're mm-hmm. also members of the Black Freighter. And then he realizes that, you know, the black freighter is just waiting off the coastline and that it's waiting for him. He did all these terrible things in order to save the people he loved, but in the end, those terrible things weren't worth it. It saved nothing. Yeah, and in the end, he was the actual perpetrator. So I think that is a great counterpoint to Veet's narrative that he's constructed for himself, where he is a savior figure. He is taking on this terrible burden to save humanity from itself. He is Alexander Mm -hmm. the Great, the Conqueror. He's following all of these things. He looks up to the pharaohs. He calls him, his superhero name is Ozymand, whatever. Ozymandias. And he's created a narrative for himself. The most interesting thing, I think, when Beat is telling them, when he does his supervillain speech. Yeah, he does his monologue. He does his supervillain monologue. One of my favorite things about that supervillain monologue is that they're like, okay, well, now we have to go stop you. And Pete's like, do you think I would have spent 30 minutes explaining this to you if it hadn't already happened? You're too late. And I'm like, okay, that's new. (laughs) That's actually very genre savvy. Yeah. The other thing is that Veet cops to pretty much everything, right? He's done a lot of... He's done a lot of shady shit. But he lies about his servants. He says that the servants drank too much 
and crash the dome in on themselves. But he actually poisons them. I don't understand why out of everything that he doesn't lie about, why he chooses... No one was asking about the servant, so I... (laughs) No one asked. And then he lies about that. So I thought that was... That really stuck out to me for no reason, and I don't know if it's like, maybe it's the one thing he can't justify to himself, because it was also very like, some kings and emperors like, kill their servants when they die, but then he doesn't actually, I expected him to like, commit suicide or something at the end. He doesn't, he doesn't. Yeah, he's like, you can't prove that it's me, no one will ever believe you, and if they do, you will have undone world peace. And I'm like, oh... Yeah, because even in, like, like when he initially, we find out later it's staged, but when he, the assassination attempt on his life, that's, like, one of the things that newsstand guy says is, like, oh, well, if men like V are getting attacked, then what's the hope for the rest of us? He is almost, like, this Christ figure for all of these people, where he is untouchable. He's the world's smartest man, and he is, he's the only one who is close to a superpower, his natural Mm -hmm. intelligence um, and after he's done being a vigilante, he turns to business and he's like a business mogul. Uh, and, and he sells like yeah. self-help books so that people can be as smart and athletic as him. And the dolls. I'm sure it's a poke at the industry because there's all this talk about merchandising mm-hmm. these vigilante figures into toys and how Veet doesn't want to do this one random thing. And I don't know if that's his rejection yeah. of the past for this new world order that he's created because he does approve some perfume ads that fit in. He does. With his with his new vision, but he rejects the toy. And it's so interesting the difference between V and Rorschach, especially Rorschach's the only one who's like, we have to tell people, like, this is not acceptable. Like, he goes to leave, but Dr. Manhattan follows him and kind of, it's like putting down a sick dog. That was the vibe that I got. It was yeah. really terrible. Yeah. Watchmen was so hard for me to read. That scene in particular messed me up. I know. Even though I knew what was happening, because at that point, like, I remember in the first time I read it, at that point, I was like, oh, this is not going to end okay. But it's, because I think it's, uh, some of it is because he's been painted as such a survivor Mm-hmm. the whole comic the fact that it takes a snap of someone's fingers essentially yeah to just kill him and yeah. have it be over it's painful it is painful the other thing that made it particularly painful for me is that he takes his mask off and this whole time rorschach hasn't thought of himself without his mask i think his name is like S- stanley or something i think yeah his last name is like Kovic or something so his name isn't Stanley, it's Walter. That's not his name to him anymore. There's this whole thing where he's talking to a psychologist while he's in prison. Um, he's like, stop calling me that. That's not who I am anymore. I'm Rorschach. I, it's his identity, you know? And he takes that mask off and faces Dr. Manhattan as Walter, not as Rorschach. That's such a moment of vulnerability from a man who is uh, is trying to be the smartest and the toughest and it, it hurt me <laughs> it hurt me too especially because i think veet's in like like included in the list of people that he's trying to protect because he knows that he's 
was one of them. Like, he even calls this guy, it ends up being V, but, like, this guy that he thinks is going around killing all of them, he calls them, like, a mm-hmm. mask killer. They're really all he ever had. Yeah. For a long time. Especially Dan, because him and Night Owl were partners. They were the only connection he had left. And the fact that V and Dr. Manhattan completely obliterate that, seemingly with no hesitation or a second thought, like, that hit me, like, really hard. And I didn't even really identify that much with Rorschach, like, on my first reading and then again on my second. Like, I didn't even really identify that that hard with him, but, like, that kind of, like, soul-deep loss that something like that incident would symbolize to a person. That betrayal? <laughs> It is. It is really a betrayal of trust from somebody who takes that very, very seriously. Mm-hmm. It hurt a lot. He's the ant that gets stepped on. The fact that Dr. Man, like Dr. Manhattan can kill him like he's killing a bug. And like that's really, I think, the moment, especially the first time I read it, where I, it really solidified how much I fucking hate Dr. Manhattan. Yeah, because he at the end just is like, I'm going to go make my own world now okay bye and that was such a weird thing yeah i'm gonna go play house now bye there's this whole scene where he walks across a pool of water and looks down at dan and Lori, who have for some reason decided that this is an appropriate time to copulate (laughs) i'm i'm squinting at you right now alan moore that was highly questionable there's a lot of highly questionable sex that goes on in this book let's be real but he looks down at them because they're they're naked and sleeping next to each other in like a very Adam and Eve kind of deal and then like goes off wherever to be play God somewhere and it's really strange. The whole ending, after they find out the plan, it got real weird. You had me right up until that point and then you had the stuff with Dan and Lori and the weird confrontation where the cat dies. It's just... It felt real weird at the end. Mm. Speaking of animals dying. (laughs) I remember this because this like horrified me the first time I read it. And I was ready for it this time. But the whole issue that's really about how Rorschach became Rorschach. And how he promised to bring this little girl who was kidnapped, butchered, and fed two dogs. He promised to bring her alive and well to her family and he couldn't. And that's what broke him. I thought about that a lot as I continued on reading. The horror of it was still what affected me, but it was differently manifested this time when I read it. Like, I was very, was like, he killed the dogs. Like, that was what 17-year-old me focused on. And I'm like, he has essentially murdered this human part of him because he can't see it in anyone else anymore. That sequence is deeply affecting both for the straight up, violence and gore that is on the page and for this huge turn of character in Rorschach and I actually watched the movie as a part of my preparation for this episode and I was still not prepared for it in the movie and I I was upset pretty much the entire time I was reading Watchmen and the entire time I watched the movie I was deeply affected by it I didn't like it I did not really care for Watchmen. I'm not going to sit here and lie to you. But I was deeply affected by it. So it's hard to ignore it. I think the value of something doesn't necessarily come from if you like it or not. Because a big thing people talk about with Watchmen is how it is 
one specific quote I do not remember who it's attributed to was like, oh, this is when comic books grew up. Because we, we've talked a lot about Alan Moore and his other work and how that sort of brought him into this position of being a, maybe not creator, as you said earlier, but like an encourager of this subculture that really isn't a subculture <laughs> anymore, of people, particularly young men, who go to comics, video games, internet in general, and who want to see a perspective where they're the ones that are being oppressed. And that is simply not true. A lot of his work's been co-opted. I think that's the word I want to settle on. Because I don't I don't think any single person has the power to create something like that with something they make. Right. In that kind of context. But I th- a lot of Alan Moore's work in particular, and particularly Watchmen and V for Vendetta, have been co-opted by this group, majority alt-right in nature, Nazis in nature, who just want to believe that someone's out to get them. There's an elitism factor in that community. Watchmen did a lot to legitimize the genre of comics as as a literary yes. form, for better or for worse. He, it was one of the things that did it. And I think there's kind of an elitism there. And I know that a lot of people, I saw a very, I wish I could, I'm going to have to find it, but there is a very insightful piece of commentary on the idea that, you know, white, maybe not necessarily always white, but white male nerds who see themselves as oppressed and put down by these jock types who are, you know, big and strong and muscular and all of the women flock to them and they're put down by this sort of expectation. But someone had pointed out that the idea of of a man who spends all of his time in, in scholarly pursuits and, and lives the life of the mind and is better than everyone else because of his superior intellect is also a form of toxic masculinity that came about in sort of probably most significantly in the age of enlightenment where you have the idea of the gentleman scholar. Yeah, the renaissance man. And I think you see that in Veet as well. It's sort of a two-factor thing that we need to acknowledge that toxic masculinity doesn't just look like one thing. It runs really deep, I think, in a lot of characters in this book. I think the two most opposite ways you can kind of look at it is the comedian and Rorschach, who sort of plays into his own kind of toxic masculinity. And V, obviously, whose fucking textbook. It's crazy to me that people don't understand the kind of messages, purposely or not purposely, we don't really care about intention on the show, that can be sent with characters like that. Because to me, like, V is so much more of a common and understandable supervillain than pretty much anyone else in the book. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. I don't think that evil and good and evil and the battle between good and evil are i don't think they're like big cosmic powers battling it out like that's not realistic to me it's a combination of these micro things and these big societal questions people are trying for the most part i think to protect the things that they love but at what cost it's not about good and evil per se but it's about the consequences of our own actions for good or ill 
Yeah, I think that's it. Because a big thing with V is he understands and accepts the consequences of what he's going to do up to and including the millions of people it is going to kill. He looks at it as I can kill half the population of Manhattan or everyone will die. And that is a choice I do not envy, to say the least. There's always a cost. And I think that we find ourselves in a world where people are unwilling to negotiate costs anymore. It feels more and more, the older I get, the more lose-lose everything feels. And I'm sure that's an increased Mm -hmm. pessimism from recent political events and also just learning Mm -hmm. things that I didn't know (laughs) in a way I didn't really want to know. And yeah, the more I learn about stuff, the more I'm like, well, this is all terrible. Yeah, it has all happened before and it will all happen again. Yeah, and it's interesting because Watchmen, the ending is left pretty open-ended, right? Because Rorschach mm-hmm. leaves his journal that explains what Veet has done or what they think that Veet is going to do at that time with this alt-right newspaper called The New Frontiersmen. It's unclear whether or not they will publish the journal, whether they will be taken seriously. Yeah, because there's some of them who don't even really believe it now. Like, the ones that do are, like, the people who kill the old night owl and the people like Rorschach who go and get their copy every day. But they're, like, the underground underdogs of society that no one ever really takes seriously. Like, they're the opposite of V, who is sitting at the top of his tower. There was no other way he was going to be able to end it, I feel. Especially if you want to bring home that whole thing that Dr. Manhattan pushes the entire book, which is nothing ever ends. There's a lot of cyclical things that happen in this book. There's a lot of focus on time. Night Owl and Silk Spectre in particular are two heroes that have multiple generations. And that they're the ones that end up together at the end. That's probably me reading into it, but I thought that was interesting. But like people like the comedian, one man and one man only. Rorschach never changes. Dr. Manhattan's one person. But you see the Night Owl and Silk Spectre being more of those, what we would typically classify as like an identity. But I remember it was, it was a dream Dan has where him and Lori, he sees Lori in this dream and he's been having a lot of really anxious thoughts about nuclear Armageddon lately, <laughs> as we all do. And he sees her in the dream, they're clothed, then they're naked. And she reaches up and like pulls at his hair. And, like, his flesh body tears away, and he's just the night owl underneath. And then he does the same to her, and she's the silk specter underneath. And it made me think, it was a very short passage, but it made me think a lot about how the ongoing discussion between superheroes, especially in the, I think it was called Under the Hood, was the book the original Night Owl published, that was his autobiography, as to how they viewed which one of their identities was their real one. Because for Rorschach, yeah, he's Rorschach. Like, he is no longer Walter. That is not a thing. He is his hero identity. And that's it. Something that I kind of thought about the whole time into the revelation of Veet's plan. Did he ever stop being Ozymandias? Mm. Was that who he really was? Right. Well, I mean, he saw himself as Alexander the Great. There's an incredible... There's an incredible amount of hubris uh, with Veet. Exactly. Hubris is a great word for it. There's a lot of hubris. He read to me as very Greek tragedy. 
I mean, you're presented with the pirate comic arc separately from Beat. But at the very end, he mentions that he read it as a child and has been reflecting on it a lot lately. He kind of puts his head in his hands at that point. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe he he did make the wrong choice. Sure, the math works out, but are human lives really about? Are they one-to-one? Like, is is that ever acceptable? Yeah. Is that ever acceptable? And that's something that Dr. Manhattan deals with as well. When Laurie especially sort of appeals to him is... It, it, it's a conversation they have where they talk about meaning and, like, the impact your life has upon the world around it. And Dr. Manhattan doesn't... Is like, well, I already know what's going to happen and blah, blah, blah. And Laurie's like, okay, I get it. But you cannot sit here and say to my face... That my life and all the things that I've done, not even just as, like, the Silk Spectre, but, like, as Lori and, like, all these relationships she had, including the one with Dr. Manhattan, she's like, you're gonna sit here and say that none of that matters. Because it doesn't matter in this big picture that you can't look away from. Yeah. That whole thing is really interesting because his point is how how is human life and the human experience any more meaningful than the sands and and rocks of mars Mm -hmm. and that's a how is it (laughs) and of course like we think so and that's where i think Lori brings in a humanist perspective because that's a perspective that says yes of course of course these things matter of course they're important by just the very nature of our experience and he ultimately comes around but they he ultimately comes around because the comedian sexually assaults Lori's mother back in the day. Pretty horribly. Yeah, it's it's not pretty. Uh, and Night Owl ends up intervening. Like, he walks in on this terrible thing that is happening and stops it. But it turns out later that Lori's mom goes back and has a consensual relationship with the comedian that results in Lori. And Lori has struggles to come to terms with this. And it's basically revealed to her through the weird time magic of Dr. Manhattan. And she has to deal with this on Mars. Yes, on the fly. As she pleads with her blue ex-boyfriend to please save humanity. Yeah, I thought it was very telling in that whole sequence a little bit earlier when he brings her to Mars and forgets that she can't breathe. Right, right. And is like, oh, I'm... So-. And she literally has to, like, fall on her knees and, like, grab at him for him to understand what's going on. That imagery, and there's no text, that whole page. That, to me, showed a lot about Dr. Manhattan's character. A lot more to me than, than it showed about Lori. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, I feel like Lori was the most relatable character to me in the book. And I think in part in part it was because she was a woman. Yeah, I would agree with that. Even though I do struggle with how she was written at times. And a lot of the time that I was reading Watchmen, I didn't feel like the book was written for me. I don't know how to explain it, but there's just sort of a like no girls allowed feeling with Watchmen. No, I totally get that. And I think I feel that way sometimes when I, especially when I read comics from the 80s, when it was still sort of the stereotype that girls didn't read that sort of thing. And the way that Laurie is written, 
she's a she's basically a sexual object to placate Dr. Manhattan in many oh, people's yeah. eyes. I think Dan has trouble thinking of her as other than a woman that he could have sex with and wants yeah. to have sex with cuz he Dan's very awkward with Lori and it comes across as sort of sweet. Yeah, it comes across as like sweetly intended. Does that make sense? Yeah, but you know that he's struggling because he wants to boner. Oh, absolutely. And it's just like ugh. Dr. Manhattan's the main one, but I-, I felt pretty much every female character in this in this book was completely dominated and determined by their relationship to other men. Yeah, because Lori's mom's relationship, or Lori's mom's character is defined almost wholly by her relationship with the comedian. And Lori is really just... She's like John's fleshlight. Like, it's... Mm, for a long time in the very beginning of the book. Like, when she gets with Dan, it's a little bit better a little bit because she gets to talk more that's the thing that i thought was interesting to look at was how she talks about john when she's left him like she can't stop talking about him and that's the thing that she keeps apologizing for but like the fact that she would be like he was never really there we get some of this in the issue that's just about his backstory but about how his perception of time limits his ability to focus on any one moment Maybe not ability, more like will. Yeah. It limits his will to focus on any one moment because he's constantly looking backwards and forwards as if he's there also. Like there's this duplicity or multiplicity of self that renders him completely incapable of focusing on one person in one moment. And at some point, that's what really sets Lori off is like they're like in bed together, like they're having sex, but like it's like a copy of him. And he's really finishing up work or something. Like, it's almost like, oh, I have to placate this crazy woman who just wants sex. And eventually she just has it. And <laughs> she's like, nope, fuck you, bye. Yeah. It's not that Lori was badly written or that she wasn't fully developed. I just feel like there's something about her that's missing something. Some men can't write women. And I feel like Alan Moore, I'm not familiar with enough of his work to say one way or the other. But there's something flat about it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think in V for Vendetta, it's better. But again, like one of the main characters of that is a woman. So she gets a lot more proverbial screen time. Yeah. If given the room and the time to develop a character, it's a bit better. But obviously, that's not an excuse to like. Yeah. That's the thing. He's so middle of the road. Because I've obviously, I know you have. I've read male authors who write significantly worse women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we're we're so spoiled. I remember, and we've talked about this in a couple episodes, every time I think of the Witches series of Discworld, I'm like, are you sure a man wrote this? Because we're so used to this. And like, yeah, the way Lori is, it doesn't detract from me continuing to read the book. No. But it is noticeable. And the fact that she isn't, she really isn't a fully developed character for the vast majority, if not all. She never gets to talk about anything other than men. Yeah, that's a good point. The other characters in the book get to talk about, like, the nuclear crisis, and they get to talk about this masked vigilante thing, but Lori's concerns are always her relationships with with men, I feel. Yeah, in a romantic or familial sense. There's a part of me that wonders, do men really think that's all women think about? I don't know. Good question. 
it goes back to the whole thing. And I think we've talked about this before. I think we talked about this in our Shape of Water episode about the very male idea that women are unknowable. (sighs) And I'm like, no, we are emotional, thinking, rational creatures. Same as you. If you put in the effort, we are perfectly understandable. Yeah. You just don't want to. Yeah, and I think that there are some women that have internalized that particular piece of misogyny. There were a couple more things I wanted to talk about, if I may. Definitely. Both of them are sort of the most kind of iconic things that came out of this book. The opening of the comic, which was the commentary from Rorschach's journal with the line... The city, like, it's something like the city will look up and say, save us, and I'll look down and whisper no. Yeah. (laughs) Which is mirrored, essentially, by Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. Oh, yuck. (laughs) And Adrian Vett, Adrian V, because Rorschach's sort of whole relationship with how he views, maybe not necessarily Dr. Manhattan, but, like, how he views the attachment to the divine and to God that people tend to cling to in times of crisis is very negative where he's like especially when it comes to the event that turned him into Rorschach it's something like God doesn't make the world this way we do yeah the other thing I want to talk about because it might just be an obtuse thing where it's up to us and it might not even mean anything the goddamn smiley face there are a lot of times where Almore repeats images or echoes images in Watchmen, and it's not, it doesn't feel like it's for any particular purpose. And the smiley face is one of the ones that that happens with. The best theory I have is that it is just to reinforce that whole cyclical, like nothing ever ends thing. Like, not even just with the smiley face, but like that image of like the thing that vaguely looks like a face and like the drop of something that goes across one of the eyes like that's repeated multiple multiple times throughout the course of the novel as like a through line yeah and it ends it it's like the cover i have is the one that's just the smiley face with the big red blot of blood but like at the end it's like that kid's t-shirt and a drop of ketchup for me i kind of took it as signaling some sort of irony like it was a reminder of how weirdly ironic life is that's very fair tbh that could very well just be it is that life is weird and cyclical and ironic and we're all gonna go around again at some point maybe if alan moore weren't so clever we'd have a clearer idea of what he actually meant but who knows that's going to do it for uh, this episode of Remedial Studies. As always, we hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed making it. If you would like to get in touch with us on any of our various social medias, we um, are re- at Remedial Studies on Twitter. We're remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com and remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com. We are going to be covering uh, one of our favorite comic book series that we both rediscovered um, and that just came out with a new volume, uh, The Wicked and the Divine, which is going to be real good. Woo, we need a palate cleanse. We need a nice palate cleanse. We need to go to, like, comics we both like and think are important. So <laughs> that's going to be um, next uh, next episode. Uh, but we really like making the show. We thank you for your patience through a couple of technical difficulties, but hopefully... 
Right Tuesday is back on Right Tuesday now. And we will see you all when we are talking about rock gods and weird teenagers and crazy ladies who have weird plans for the multiverse. Yeah, so see you later, robots.